Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to another episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm joined tonight with my friends Randy and Jim. Jim is going to be teaching in a couple of weeks on John chapters 14 to 17. So tonight we are hoping to look at John chapter 14 and perhaps chapter 15 if we get there. So guys, um, let's just talk a little bit about the context. Um this is uh, these chapters are really, really powerful. It's some of the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to the cross. But I know that right before this, um, they had their last supper. And uh, so so and and also the other big event is that Jesus says that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And. It turns out, identifies, Judas is identified as that disciple, and then he ends up leaving the room, and then we're kind of like, uh, the next thing that happens is John chapter 14. What else about, what else about the context stands out to you guys? Well, I think it's kind of important, like you said, it's uh, to, that uh, all this happens in the last week of Jesus's life before his uh, death on the cross. So the uh, triumphal re-entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, as we call it. That's in John chapter 12. And this is like you were just saying, they just had the the Last Supper. And just because of the events you were talking about, Greg, there's some real tension in the air. Um, you know, we, it's this podcast, we kind of do this where we hop around and kind of like <laughs> passages. We do these select passages that kind of that we're teaching on, that we're focusing on. It's um uh not like we start right at the beginning of John and just plow right through it, but it's such a wonderful gospel. And I've been studying it recently. The and you can just feel uh the love that comes through the book of John and how um there's a reason why if you're talking to people about their faith, like if someone's listening to this podcast and maybe they're considering Christianity, they're not sure they stumbled on the gospel addict, maybe did the wrong search and they're listening to this now and they're saying, well, I'm, they already know it's about Christianity. If you're exploring Christianity, thinking about Christianity, what is it to be a Christian? The book of John is a great place to start. That Just is so true. That is so true. You know, one of the, one of the reasons I love the book of John is because you see Jesus interacting with individuals. Yeah. The way he in, in, interacts with you know, the religious people on an individual, you know, he has a personal conversation with Nicodemus. He has a personal conversation with the woman at the well, who is, um, you know, kind of an outcast, just all these personal encounters and conversations. And it just, it's just great. Randy, yeah. what do you, what do you like about the gospel, John? Well, you know, I love the gospel of John and I think John is so unique because it, um, it's very theological. There's some themes in John, like light, um, the I am statements that are in John. He uses the word life, love, and light throughout the entire book. And um, I love that. In fact, if you go into first, second, and third John, he continues those illustrations of light, love, and life. And so, yeah, um, I love, honestly, one of the main things I love about the way, book of John is the way John describes himself the one in whom Jesus loved. And it's so funny because mm -hmm. I used to think about that because he would say that, you know, the one whom he loved beat Peter to the tomb. Like he was always kind of, I always thought he was comparing himself to Peter when I was younger. And I used to think, wow, you know, he doesn't want to say his name, but at the same time, he's letting everybody know Jesus loved me the most. And then I started thinking about it and I said, it's not in comparison. It's the definition of himself. How he defines himself is one loved by Jesus. Oh, wow. And I just thought, you know what? That is so like, that's how we should define ourselves, isn't it? Amen. Amen. That we are loved by Jesus. And so um, you asked me, John, that, that book has changed my life. That little thought uh, changed my life. Instead of me, my goal for life used to be when I was younger out of college was relentlessly loved Christ. 
And when I read this and started thinking about it, my goal for life was uh, if I wanted to put on my tombstone someday was relentlessly loved by Christ. That it, it always goes back to him, doesn't it, Greg? I like that. That's so. And, and you know, how we identify ourselves, where we find our identity is so important. Um, you know, even if, if I identify as a Christian worker, if that's my identity, then it's still, it's still not really, um, the best identity, uh, you know, but for John to say he was the, the one who, who Jesus loved. I mean, that, that is really powerful. Um, so here's here's something just in the immediate context that I think is just also profound. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Yeah. And for us, when we read that, it's because we live in the modern day and we don't have dirty feet. We have shoes, we have socks. It's it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around what, what Jesus did there. Um, but the thing that the thing that stands out to me, guys is that Jesus washed even Judas's feet, knowing that just a few minutes after this, that Judas was going to be identified and he was going to leave the room and betray him. And, you know, it, it, the, the Bible would still be amazing if Jesus didn't wash Judas's feet. Like, but the fact that he washed Judas's feet along with the other 11 is just, kind of profound yeah it's kind of by choice too isn't it greg because he easily could have done the you know the, that's in the that's in the first part of 13 and then later in chapter 13 he has the thing where he says the one who dips the bread is the one who's going to betray me and judas he could have done that first and said great well now that judas is gone let me wash all your feet but it's you're right i never thought about that it's exactly backwards for some reason it you know he chose um and he lets us know that he washed even Judas's feet, yeah. Which is, I, I, I just think that is just profound. So anyway, the setting of this chapter fourteen is the disciples are troubled. I mean, um, they know that this is, this is an unusual something strange is happening. Um, you know, so that's why I think the words at the beginning of John chapter fourteen. And why don't we just dive in and start discussing this um you know randy do you have the text in front of you yes i do greg do you want to you want to read the first uh you know couple paragraphs like sure one to 14 maybe what translation would you like um whichever one you pick I'm in All the right. e, I'm in the ESV tonight, Greg. What are you reading? Yeah, I'm an ESV too. Okay. <laughs> you don't have. I don't ESV. have that one from me, but the, I I will. I was gonna say I have eight in front of me, but not that one. I'm gonna read the New American Standard today, right now. Okay. Great. Do not let your hearts, um, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many dwelling uh, places. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Um, how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mm. It's verses one to five. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good one start. One through six. I'm sorry, one through six. I mean, let's just start with verse one there. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's, uh, um, you know, the, the disciples had reason to be troubled. Jesus had told them that one of them was a traitor. Um, and that all of them would deny him. And that he would leave them that night. 
All this would legitimately trouble the disciples, yet Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I think one of the things that strikes me is Jesus never promised us a life without trouble, but he did promise that we could have an untroubled heart, even in the midst of trouble. And I think that's that's one of the one of the great things about being a follower of Jesus is that, you know, your things can be there can be all kinds of trouble around you, but you could still have peace in your heart. Um, it's really great. Have you found that to be true in your own life, Craig? Have you feel that? Yeah, on certain occasions, I definitely. I mean, I I love. It reminds me of Philippians chapter four, where he talks about you can have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just evidence that God is in your life. And I, you know, of course, there's times when my heart is troubled, but you know, I can pray and I can, and I can find myself, you know, all of a sudden have peace in the midst of whatever's troubling me. And that's the way I want to live my life. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's the astonishing offer of Christianity to help you with your anxiety, to give you peace. And I, I feel like personally, I'm too too much whipsawed by my circumstances. You know, you live in your circumstances, it's hard to rise above. I don't take that offer enough, but the offer is out there. I don't think the other religions are really offering that. They're saying strive without ceasing, climb the ladder, achieve righteousness or, you know, holiness according to whatever the precepts of that religion are. But Christianity says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's, the thought is echoed later in the, in the same chapter. We're not there yet, but in 1427, it's a famous verse, and we'll get to it in a few minutes, but read it now. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So just like an echo of the way it starts coming up again, another kind of famous verse. But I don't take the offer as much as I should. I let my, I let my heart get troubled and fearful. Yeah. Randy, any any thoughts? Well, I, I do, th you know, um, I think as followers of Christ, Jesus is promising a couple of things, that everything changed for the disciples during the resurrection, and then um, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, and everything changed. The game was now changed for everybody. Um, I think it's interesting that, when we really understand who Jesus is, if we sit back on that, and I mean, I think there's times that my heart is troubled, but he promises us peace. And I think if you think about it, if we're persecuted, he promises us rewards in heaven. If we're killed, we get to be with Jesus. If we're not killed, we get to love and serve him here. Like, it's a win-win-win-win. Like, there's, we don't lose in any scenario. Right. It doesn't mean that we don't get freaked out. But the reality is, is if I truly believe that, it changes everything. And just after that, what does Jesus say? Trust me. And I'm thinking, this is the guy they saw cast out demons and feed 5,000 at one time and heal the leper. And he's looking at them and saying, hey, don't worry. Trust me. Like, I've got you. I've got your best interest. So I, I think that's so... Um, he's saying not to worry. And then he's saying, Hey, look, trust me. If we trust him, then we don't worry. I think. Hmm. So here's so, a, here's a question. Do you think that, do you think their hearts were troubled already? Or is he, is he basically saying, Hey, in a couple hours, man, things are going to get really, really bad. <laughs> and you you may not be you know maybe they weren't that troubled at this point maybe they were just like i don't know where judas went but um he's he left um maybe this is like jesus is saying hey guys i'm not gonna you know he's preparing them for that future what do you think randy well two thoughts you guys one they knew this political situation. They knew the religious leaders were coming after him. If you remember when Jesus and Thomas are waiting uh, to go raise Lazarus and you go to Bethany, 
And Thomas looks and says, okay, let us go and die with him. Like they know that he's been, he's been stirring up a hornet's nest for a long time. So when Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, I think they knew that th th there's issues here, right? And so I think they were troubled about what's going to happen politically. These religious leaders. Second, Jesus keeps talking about his demise, like, uh, like the temple, tear this temple down. And three days later, I'm going to, uh, you know, that like Jonah in the belly of the whale. He says over and over in different ways that he's, uh, I'm he's telling him, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be here. And so I think for them, um, yeah, I think the political situation and some of the teaching that Jesus has had, I think they are a little worried. That's good. Well, and then he goes on and says, in my father's house are many rooms. Um, if it were not so, I would have I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. What do you think about that? What you know? Why is he bring up this whole idea of the 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 future and you know that's a that's a, a challenging one well your hope for the future affects how you live right now right where you think it's all going to end up where you think it's going that's the ultimate piece that comes to saying the randy was saying before it's a win-win situation i'm going to be with him no matter what happens he said oh, you're going to be with me forever so there's really nothing you need to worry about so Lots of lots of things have been said about these verses about the rooms being mansions and um yeah this one says rooms is there like another parallel passage where it says I'm gonna prepare a mansion for you because you know remember there was that old Christian song mansion builder I used to love that um <laughs> second chapter of Acts I've got a mansion builder uh it was a great song great Christian band from the 70s. But, but that idea, like, oh, God's preparing mansions for us. But you're right. This one says rooms. Maybe there's a parallel passage. Dwellings. It's also dwellings. Yeah. But does I think, it, I we just read that. into it? Oh, I, I, when he says room, I like to think of it as a mansion. We just like reading ourselves into it somehow. And... I, I think the main point, though, is that there's room in heaven for all of us. Like, Oh, well, that's true. There's room, like, wherever it is and what it looks like, there's room for us. Um, but I, I, I was going to say... This is kind of a wild thought, so hang with me if you can for just a second. But right. throughout Scripture, Jesus makes a covenant. And um, so, like with Abraham, when Abraham, um, he makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham fall, he makes Abraham fall asleep, and God walks in between the two animals. They would take an animal, cut it in half, right? And he would make this covenant. And what that says is, may it be to me, as this animal, if this covenant is broken. So he doesn't even allow man to go in. He's saying, I'm going to be the one that pays the penalty if this covenant is broken. Right. So that's all the way back with Abraham. Then he um, he's telling them that he's going to prepare a place for him. And he talks about them in, in other places, the, the maids that are waiting, uh, handmaids waiting and stuff. This is this is, I think, verbiage of a wedding. And so what would happen is. When the father of the groom and the groom would go meet with the group, the, the bride's father, and they would strike a deal of what the dowry is going to be. And the, once that was struck, they would then pay the dowry. Once the dowry was paid, the bride actually belonged to the, the groom, but he would then leave and go prepare a place for them to live. And so no one knew how long that was going to take. It's like the bridesmaids waiting for the return. The, the bride would prepare the wedding and be getting the wedding. And, and he may get his friends and they said he may prepare a house on his father's land or put an addition off the back of his father's house. But he was preparing a place for them to live. And then he would come back and he would take his bride to be with him. And I'm like, this whole passage is so similar to that, that his bride, Jesus is going to come back and take his bride. And he's already prepared the place for her. And I think um, I'm looking at a couple of commentaries and they don't mention that, but I remember sitting in a seminary class and being taught that this was a similar language that Jesus is coming to get his bride. And um, he's going to, he's going to take his bride to be back, to be with him where he's at. Mm. That's awesome. And, you know, I, 
I, as I'm doing some research here, I, in the Greek, you know, it is appropriate to, to interpret that as mansions. Oh, really? The, the Greek word. Um, hey, Randy, you've got a parallel Bible in front of you. What does the King James say? For John 14, verse 2. Uh, Randy, I think you, you might be unmuted. muted. I think you're, you're still muted, Brandy. That's embarrassing. Sorry. The King James says mansions. In um, the New American, it says dwellings. In the New International, um, my father's house are many rooms. Yeah, so. Yeah, so we'll just think of just taking uh, think about this thought in light of God's nature. It's better to translate it mansions because whatever dwelling place God has for us in heaven, it will be as glorious as a mansion. That makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it'll, probably, be, that. it'll probably even be better than a mansion. Right. Like something, something, something so much better than the best housing situation we can think of on earth. Right. So I've had a chance to stay in a couple of castles in Scotland. And if it's just a room in the castle, if you'd have seen them, like I'm, I'm okay with that. They were unbelievable how beautiful it was and how nice it was. But again, I think I go back to the point that the point though is whether it's a massive mansion or I get to have a room in what God's house is like. Oh my gosh, can you imagine what that's like? I, it, the whole point is there's room for us. That God's got a, He's got it. He's got us a place for us, and He's ready for us. And so. I think to me, if it's a room or a massive mansion, it's either way, it's okay. We get to be with him. Yeah. And I like it. I like where in verse three, he says, and if I go prepare a place for you, the that, that whole thing, I go. When Jesus is saying, I go, it's saying he's taking the initiative. He's going to the cross. He's choosing this. He's choosing this route. Because he knows it's the only route uh, for him to bring us to be with him. And it, it just shows his incredible courage at this point that he's he's choosing this path um, to 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 the cross, you know? Yeah, of his own volition. But he does it so that we can be with him because he says, like you just said, uh, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So it doesn't matter if it's a mansion or a hole in the ground, we're going to be with him. And that's and that's the thing. That's the thing that makes it glorious, right? That's what makes it even better than a mansion is that he will be with us. Right. Right. So it's not about the mansion. It's not about what that dwelling place looks like. It's the fact that he's there. That's right. That's right. Hey guys, so, let's, let's shift gears and go to verse five because it's such a famous verse. I just want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, go ahead. And, uh, yeah, so then it moves on and Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where, where you are going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You want to stop there? Or keep going. No, let's, let's just talk about that verse for a little bit because it's so poignant. It's so such a big verse in the Christian life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, um, I think that I heard someone say that there were philosophers at the time that would try to say, let me just teach you the way. I'm going to teach you my philosophy. Here's the way. I'm going to teach you the truth so that you can have life. And Jesus was doing this as kind of a play on words that would have been familiar to them because that was a common, I, I'm not sure this is true, but I, hear, I remember hearing someone talk about this once, that that was kind of a common philosophical refrain. I have words of you know, truth. I'm going to show you the way so that you can have life. And Jesus comes by and says, I, it turns it on its head. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm everything. You know, yeah. and it, there's. To, you know, to be a Christian, you say there's no, there is no other way. You are the way and there's no other truth. Right, you are the truth, and you are my life. Like, what's that verse? Is Colossians, Colossians three? When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is our life, right? Amen. Christ, our Amen. life. 
you know. Love so it. yeah, no, it's like I love it. So he he is the way. There's no other way. He's the right total truth, not one truth among many. He is the truth, and he is my life. But I just want to know if there's any other thoughts on that first, because it's 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 got to be one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. So, two thoughts. One, um, where Jesus says, um, "I am," and uh, when he says in the beginning, "Believe, trust, or have faith in me, and have faith in my Father." In both of these cases, I think Jesus is referring to his deity. Mm. I remember once watching a, a History Channel TV show on, on Jesus, and the one one theologian said Jesus never claimed deity. And I literally threw my pillow at the TV at the moment. I was like, so mad. I was like, he did all over. How can you miss it? He's saying, believe in God and believe in me. He's comparing himself to God. And he forgave sins. He, for, uh, he You know, the lowering of the paralytic. But here he says, I am. And then I am refers back to, I believe, to the great I am, the calling of Moses. And he said, who shall I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. And so eight times in the book of John, Jesus says, I am. I don't think the religious leaders missed it. I think we miss it times, but I think they were angry every time they heard it. I think they caught what he's referring back to. So one, I think this, here's the, again, the deity of Christ. Um, and I think people sometimes say to Christians, how can you Christians be so egotistical or so, um, you're not inclusive in any way. Right. So narrow-minded. And, you know, it's not our words. Jesus is the one that makes the claim. I'm not saying there's nothing in me that's, uh, I, have, I have nothing to do with this. But right. Jesus is making the claim that he is the way. So either he is or he's not. I mean, either right. he's telling the truth or he's lying. Right. And so, or he's crazy. And, and so, yeah, how, you can't explain away the miracles, the resurrection. I mean, so I guess I just want to say is that when people talk about how Christians, um, you know, we, we just uh, don't have compassion or we're, um, we're arrogant. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, narrow-minded. Yeah, we're narrow-minded. I think it this isn't, this is the teaching of Jesus himself that he was the way God provided a way to heaven because of our sin. And he's it. Mm. Well, anyway. it takes, no, it's great. Rain. It takes away the option of him. People saying, well, he's just a nice teacher, love and peace. He claimed to be the only way to God. It's not like a, some really, he was a really great professor. He's a good teacher. He's really gave us words of love and peace. Like this ain't words of love and peace. This is pretty, there are lots of places around this too, this, as we're reading it where he says, you obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commands. You know, you can't imagine talking about, oh, I had this great professor in college. He was so great. And he told me I had to obey all his commands. And that's not a good professor. It was an egomaniac, right? It's uh, it's the liar, lunatic, or Lord kind of uh, argument. Mm. But I want to keep talking about it because this, uh, this exclusivity claim is such a, so offensive to modern people. But this is like a philosophical so right, you mean right there, some agreed and said, you're right, I get it. He's not just a teacher of love and peace. He's claiming to be have exclusive truth, and that offends me. So philosophically, they can stop right there. But then the whole next passage, you're talking about Philip, we're going to get to in a minute, and then the Holy Spirit, and then and even more so in John 15, it's all about relationship with Christ and knowing him personally. Um, and you know, people can stop here well, just to kind of jump ahead of that thought. People can stop and short circuit and say, well, look, this exclusive thing is so offensive. I can't buy it, this. And, and Jesus is making that claim. So there's no way around that. But, um, but what he's really saying, if you read all of it, is saying, you need to know me. Who do, who do people say that I am? That's the primary question. Do you believe in me? Right. Do you, um, you got to meet Jesus and know him. And then, and then, Think about these philosophical objections, but people stop kind of right here and say, oh, "This is just too offensive. It's too exclusive. I can't buy it." Just, just to be clear on that, Jesus didn't say that he would show us a way. Right. He said he is the way. Right. And he didn't promise to teach us a truth. He said he is the truth, and he didn't right. offer us secrets to life. 
he said that he is the life. So what does that mean to you, Greg? Because that, that you're getting right to the heart of the gospel. Well, it's it's life-changing if right. you really understand it. It is. It's the it's part of the essence of the gospel. And it's the thing that a lot of people find offensive because it's the exclusivity of the, the Christian offer, faith. But the offer is so incredible because he says. He could say, he say, I could come in and say, I don't want someone to be the way. I just shoot, Jesus, give me some tips for a living. I can do this, right? Show me the way and I'll be fine. I need a self-help book. I need some inspiration and just show me that Jesus says, you're never, you, 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 you're a complete moral failure. You can't do this. I did it all for you. I am the way. I'm not just showing you the way. And if he was a teacher of love and, love and peace, there would be such despair because I couldn't do it. I couldn't follow it I, if you said well just be like jesus be the servant on the mountain just do it all like i can't that's the point but he did it for me in my place he is the way he's not showing me the way he is the way and that's he's not my just my he is my teacher yes but he's my redeemer right that's the that's what keeps us going this gospel that's the theme of the gospel addict podcast right it's the yeah. gospel that propels you through the whole christian life realizing he is the way he did it all for me and that's an exclusive truth claim, but it's a beautiful exclusive truth claim because nothing else, every, back up, every other philosophy is exclusive as well. Even the philosophy that says it's ridiculous for you Christians to claim exclusivity. No religion should claim exclusivity. Everyone should be open minded. Those are all spiritual truth claims, right? Therefore, it's a particular Western kind of mindset that says this is the way spiritual reality works. And it's offensive to me if you don't comply. But it's a very, it's an assertion of a truth claim with no basis in science or anything like that. It's just a truth claim. And it's, yeah. it's an exclusive one. You Christians are bad because you're not all open-minded like I am. And it's, uh, so yes, this is exclusive, but every system of thought is exclusive. But this, this system of thought says, it's exclusivity says someone paid the price completely for you and gives it to you for free. Right? And every other, every other exclusive, train, exclusive train, uh, truth claim makes you work for it. So mm -hmm. anyway, so, but the, 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 there, I'm sure there are many, many books written about just this one verse, right? Because it's, it's packed. It's so packed. It's, it's fantastic, Greg. It's, it's so key. It's it, because someone says, look, your Christianity is an exclusive truth claim. And you say, right. And the exclusive truth claim is this, that everybody is welcome. Anybody, like not just the good, not just the righteous, not just the people that have made the steps to enlightenment or are wise or figured things out or have kept their nose clean. None of it. It's like everybody. And the exclusive truth claim is massively expansive and massively inclusionary to everybody. And I love what you said, by the way, because Christianity is a true multicultural. The promise of Christianity is that every tribe and tongue will be there. It's, it's, it's leading to a multicultural world, right? So just unbelievably inclusive. It's exclusive truth claim is inclusivity. Yeah. So yeah. it's hard I, to get all that out though. And someone's like, yeah, I don't want to hear here. Cause <laughs> when I have these conversations with people, they're like, yeah, you still think you've got it all figured out. You know, all the answers, you got all the truth. And um, they kind of just don't want to hear it. So, yeah. But that does, yeah. you know, that does offend people initially that when Jesus says, I am the way, that's right. The truth and the life, right. No one comes to the father except through me. That is, that can be offensive to people. Yeah. But if you really understand it, you see how inclusive it is. Randy, did you want to make a comment? Well, yeah, I think if anyone should be humble, it should be Christians. And sadly, there are many Christians who feel like we do have it all figured out. But the reality is, if we truly believe what we're reading, it did not come from us. It wasn't our idea. We didn't earn it. it it's That's grace. That's the gospel. And so it, it's not our earning. It's not... And um, in fact, we even grow because of his grace and how we teach it. So none of this is from us. Right. We right. should be the most humble people on earth. That's right. Because it, it, it's not, I, what do I have to be proud in other than Christ and Christ alone? And so, you know, um, people that talk about how we're so arrogant, Honestly, I, I think it's, and sadly, I think sometimes we do come off that way as followers of Jesus. But the reality is, is I think we should be the most humble. 
Um, mm. And again, that takes us back to who Jesus was, right? Um, so perhaps a lot was, of the arrogance that people um, reject or experience is our culture is the fact that we're Americans. Mm. Do you because find that in your if you if you well if you travel the world, you realize that Americans are known to be arrogant um, in other cultures. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to think that we've got it all figured out, and yet our country is one of the youngest countries in the in the world, and uh, we're we're a land full of immigrants. That's right. But I think a lot of the arrogance people experience from Christians are. are maybe more from the the fact that we're american christians than from our faith but it can be and it ties into what you were saying a minute ago that you can be an african christian you can be an ethiopian christian right you could be an australian christian that you're you bring your culture to it the christianity doesn't pull you out of your culture it redeems your culture and god's going to move us towards a multicultural world but it's not it's not going to oppose American Christianity, but that's a lesson for us because I think that no matter what our culture is, you do have to kind of separate the parts of your, if you start blending your Christianity and your culture and you got to separate, like, what is it about what I, the way I'm practicing my Christianity that is just, just my culture and just my cultural interpretation, right? Versus what is really truly biblical Christianity and kind of work to kind of parse those out and separate those because it's really, it's all too easy to say, well, every Christian knows you do it this way, which you're, what you're doing is, bringing your culture into it, your cultural biases. So you do have to work to kind of parse those out. True. Hey, let's move on. Yeah, so can I just one quick thing I'm in this uh, commentary I have here by Frederick Dale Bruner, he's quoting Luther in a sermon that Luther gave. Yay. And, and, yeah, and he says, with a view to the beginning, he's called the way. He is the truth with regard to the means and the continuation. And he is a life by reason of the end. For he must be all, the beginning, the middle, and the end of our salvation. And I'm just thinking, that's the gospel, guys. He's he's the beginning. He continues. We continue in the truth. And eventually, we get to be with him forever, life. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I just, I, when I read that, I was like, boy, that resonates. That's so, so awesome. Thanks for sharing that. That's great. Sometimes I think, you know, why did you choose me, God? Why, you know? I don't know if you guys ever feel that way. Like, why me? Like, you know, I wasn't did you looking say, why for did God. He do we ever wonder why he chose you? <laughs> no. <laughs> never, never occurred to me to question that, Greg. Me, I can question, but you, you seemed obvious. Yeah, right, I, I right. totally agree with you on that. Yeah, I, <laughs> All right. Well let's, well, let's move on. Right after the statement, he says, if you've known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father and it will be enough for us. And then Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. And then he says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will, will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So let's discuss this little portion. Um, uh, any thoughts on like Philip's question here? Sorry, I remember um, very well a Bible study in college where someone introduced this as the most embarrassing question the world has ever seen. The most embarrassing question in the history of the world ever when Philip asked this, because Philip does get kind of a little bit of a rebuke from Jesus, right? Yes, it's a bit of a sharp kind of comeback, but it's really embarrassing because Jesus just says in verse seven, it's kind of clear. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father. Right. And uh, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him because you see me. And then Philip says, great, great, great. I got it. Jesus, show us the father. And it's and then Jesus kind of he doesn't, you know, slam him completely. But it's 
have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Maybe Jesus isn't angry. He's just discouraged. Like, oh, you snap in his forehead. Like, ah, you've been following me. We've been spending every day together for the last three years. And I'm about to go to the cross in a few days. And you still don't really know, you know. So maybe discouraging for Jesus more than anything. But the key, I think one of the big keys is a couple of keys here. But one of his word is the word no. Um, I was just, I told you, Greg, I was listening to a sermon that Tim Keller gave on John 14. And he really went on that because he said that that is like the essence and that of, of Christianity. It makes Christianity different than all the other religions. And that's the, we're talking about a second ago, because you can say every other religion, you might have a philosophy. So, you know, Buddha lived and wrote a book and you have his book later and Confucius lived and wrote a book and you have the book later, but you don't have a personal relationship with Confucius. If you're Confucius, right? So you don't have a personal relationship with Muhammad. You don't, you know, die and go up to heaven and say, oh, Muhammad, you saved me. I love you. So mom's like, I gave you instructions for living. I wrote down the things you should do. Right. Um, but Christianity is all about knowing Jesus, right? I've been with you so long, you still do not know me, Philip. What Jesus wants for Philip is not just listen to my teachings and obey my precepts and my commands and be a good person. He says, I want you to know me. And he's discouraged that Philip doesn't know him at this point. But it's all about all about knowing Jesus. I know that's, that's my quick reaction because I just kind of listened to that this one sermon. What do you, what do you guys think? I think it's interesting because it's so easy for us to look at the disciples and think, oh, my gosh, they're such knuckleheads. Right. How did they not get it? But the reality is in Judaism, no one saw God. Right. I mean, uh, Moses got to interact with God some in the in the and um, the, the covenant. But they didn't have this. So when he's saying, show me the father. I think it's consistent with what he's grown up knowing that the Holy Spirit comes upon prophets and gives them power. Miracles have happened through God, but we've not really seen him. And so I kind of get where he's coming from, but um, you're right. He's been with Jesus so long. And I think Jesus gets to the end here and he says, at least believe in the miracles that I've done. Like right. they testify to me. And um what does he say here? Um, uh, I have been doing his will, do even you'll do even greater things. But he talks about how he has been doing these, uh, doing his work. I say you are not my own, rather in the Father living in me who is doing his work. That God's been doing his work through Jesus to the people. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think they've been with him. They've seen his works. They've seen the miracles. They've heard his teaching. But I do have to understand it. It's got to be hard for a Jew at that time to put oh. aside all the teaching of all those years to say, wait. Yeah, I have great empathy for them. I think I would have been far more confused than they were. So I think I think you're right. And and you, you mentioned earlier, they, they you know, the Holy Spirit came down Pentecost and they're even verses when they say, we didn't understand at the time, but later we remembered these things. And, oh, that and it came back to us. Um, you think part of what he's saying here is when he says, if you had known me, you would know my father also, that he's explaining why he was the only way to God, because he was the perfect representation of God. Part of the Trinity. To know Jesus is to know God. Right. Um, is that part of what's happening here? Is he's he's saying you would you would know to know him was to know God. Yeah, actually, it's another I am statement. You uh, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So, you know, Jesus is part of the Trinity because the whole next section is all about the Holy Spirit, right? Right. We're getting to so it's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So how could there be another way? Um, I'm the gig, I'm part of the Trinity that you're coming towards, right? I'm not just another teacher saying, here's how to climb the mountain to reach God somewhere, some distant thing. I am I'm the top of the mountain you're climbing towards. Um, and um uh, and it's with my work, kind of having the father forsake who forsook me that lets you come in and be part of this and and join uh, our communities, right? So 
there can't be anyway. So that's an interesting point, Craig, that maybe this explains and clarifies some of the exclusivity that you see in the I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, let's uh let's continue on, Jim. You want to read the rest of the chapter, 15 yeah. to 31 in the ESV? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with uh, chapter 15. I'll just keep going to the end. Um, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it, it I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Wow, what a discourse. My first, yeah, my first impression of that is, I mean, there's so many great uh, verses that we love to meditate on and memorize, but just hearing you read that, Jim, reminds me, this was like, these, this was an actual discourse that Jesus gave. And it's amazing that we have it 2,000 years later. Right. We right. have these words. These were like, these were private words to this small group of guys. And it's amazing just how detailed they are. Yeah. And that's what he says right in here, you know, you, the Holy Spirit will come and bring into your remembrance all that I've said to you. So right there. Uh, self-referencing in the text is what is exactly what you just described that we have it because the Holy Spirit brought it back to their memory. Praise the Lord. I mean, it's just such an amazing speech, right? Yeah. I mean, it's right. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's so comforting and it's so filled with love. You know, one thing I wanted to, one scheme for friendship that came up, um, we were talking about Philip um, and uh it, and it comes through in this whole chapter is the idea of relationship or faith having three aspects, an intellectual faith, an emotional faith, and a volitional faith. And an intellectual faith is knowing. That's when Jesus says, you've been with you so long, Philip, you don't know me. Right. And then an emotional faith is loving the Lord. And that's all right in the center of the section we just read, starting really in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved my father. So much love, 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 love going on. Right. So that's another part of your faith. And then the volitional part, like, yeah, he has got my commandments and keeps them, keeps them. All these things about if you have my commandments, you got to keep my commandments. That's the choices we make, right? So there's a volitional aspect to our faith too. It's we we know him, we love him, and then we choose, right? Um, mm -hmm. th you know, just three different aspects that come out. And they all, all three come out in this, just in John 14. Randy, what struck you when you were reading it? What's your favorite verse or what jumped off the page to you? Well, a couple of things. One, um, obedience. That Jesus is calling us to obedience. He's not saying, I'm looking for some intellectual assent to my teaching that you would agree with me. Um, he's saying, 
that if you believe you're obedient. And so uh, there's a whole lot here about obedient and living it out that if the only way you show your love for him is obedience. But the second part of that is he talks about the Holy Spirit. I love this idea is the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. Amen. We can't live it apart from the Holy Spirit. That's right. Sometimes we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending him. He is the one that enables you to be obedient and to follow me. And so throughout this whole part you just read, Jim, is obedience and abiding in the Holy Spirit in my mind. Like those are the concepts that I keep coming back to. The last thing that hits me is where Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And at the end of this, he says, now let us go. We're leaving this room. So he is telling them as they're getting ready to leave, don't let your hearts be troubled. Be at peace. The Holy Spirit will bring you peace. Uh, this is in control. My father, I'm going, you, you knew what was happening. You'd be happy mm -hmm. for me because I get to go back and be with the father and um, don't be afraid. So here's kind of a Bible study kind of question you'd ask in a small group Bible study. When you read that verse, it says, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. What's the difference between the peace of the world versus the peace that the, that Jesus gives to us. I think peace in the world a lot of times is circumstantial. Mm -hmm. I think we find peace like, oh, I'm at peace. Like um, I'm sitting on my back porch. As followers of Christ, we can rest and be at peace in the middle of a war. Like uh, my wars, bombs are blowing up around us uh, figuratively, and yet we are able to find peace. Not uh, like I said, circumstantially, but but in our hearts. It's God inside out. God has not lost control. He still loves me. He's still victorious. He's still on the throne. And as messed up as governments in the world may be, or as situations are, God is still God. And right. we can be at peace with that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. To me, that's the difference is it's one tends to be more circumstantial. Like when Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, I don't think he's talking about peace. Uh, I mean, he can give peace between nations. Of course he can. But I think he's talking about peace between us and God. Mm. I think he's talking about peace in our hearts here. So, Well, yeah, the, the peace of reconciliation with the Father, right? Our sins are forgiven. We have a path. We, he is the way. He's paid the price for us. You know, I've been thinking about just the, um, like the merits of psychology, the kind of piece that comes from psychological counseling. And I think that in some Christian circles, there's a stigma associated with that. I don't, I don't take that view. I think that oftentimes there are psychological problems that really can be really worked out with um, uh, counseling and therapy, and you can get great insight into those things. But there are limits. It's, 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 a, it's a, like if someone's gone through abuse, for example, as a child, they can really get a lot of benefit by therapy and counseling to work through those issues. But that's the limit is it's still based on introspection and say, oh, that's why I'm anxious. I have these triggering events and it brings back these memories or something. You get understanding that way. And it can be really usually beneficial in a person's life. But but there comes a point where there's just a limit to that, right? It's like there's a limit to how much peace you can get just through introspection. This piece is coming from outside of us. This is this is transcendental, right? It's just, this is saying not as the world gives you, I give to you. I'm able to give you something that's way beyond that. Right. Um, and, and part of his reconciliation with the father, back to that, I am the way, the truth and the life. He's the way he's done it for us. And then with the way we started this conversation within my father's house are many rooms or any mansions. You've got a future with me way beyond your current troubles. Right. You know, Karina, you mentioned, like you mentioned bombs going off. There are places in the world where bombs are going off right now. It's horrible. Right. Um, and uh, how can you have peace in that when your circumstances are falling apart and you say, well, you know, if I can get the peace that passes all understanding, I've got someone who uh, says I can know him personally, not just a system of thought or a fate. I mean, a philosophy I can, and he's done it all for me. I don't have to achieve it. And he's got a place for me that I can go. Right. Um, that's transcendent peace. So um, 
very different. I like this. Uh, I think it's back up in uh, verse 18 to 21, where he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Um, I guess Charles Spurgeon considered several ways that the followers of Jesus were not like orphans. For example, an orphan has parents who are dead, but the spirit shows us that Jesus is alive. An orphan is left alone. The spirit draws us close to God's presence so that we're never alone. An orphan has lost their provider. The spirit provides all things. An orphan is left without instruction, but the spirit teaches us all things. And then finally, an orphan has no defender, but the spirit is our protector. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, the, what a the, contrast. The role of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's, that's really, I like that a lot, Greg, because you can feel left alone, like there's no provider. I don't have instruction. I don't know which way to go. I have no defender. Even as a Christian, you can feel that way. And you got to remember, that's not, you're not an orphan. You're not alone. You have to remember these words, right? Right now, like a lot of people are struggling with isolation, you know, yeah. from, from the pandemic and feeling, I mean, how many people out there feel alone? Right. Right. Nobody understands me. Um, well, that, but that tells you something because we, we feel alone because we're built for relationship, right? Built for relationship because we were made in the image of the father and they were relational from the beginning. Right. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just like it, all the Trinity comes out in this whole passage, but they were relational. That's why we're relational, right? Yeah. And then that brings up again the 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 amazing fact of the gospel that our Creator was willing to tear apart the Trinity in order for us to, to be brought in. Can't understand it. It's right. My you, God, you my God. Your whole my life. I know. Like the kind of like the Trinity. I know God is immutable, right? God can never change, but like Jesus says, like my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like the, as if the Trinity was blown apart, so that you could come and be part of that dance, part of that glory, part of that that community, that loving relation. It's just amazing, right? And nothing else teaches that. Nothing is nothing is close to that. No, no one else offers that. And we spend our whole lives like trying to grasp it right. and you, you never quite fully grasp it because it's so mind boggling that the creator of the universe would do this for me. Well, when I'm at this in my servants quarters at the end of your drives, driveways and your mansions, um, I'll be, I'll, I'll be studying this and meditating on this Greg and Phil the joy as long as, as long as I'm with them. Randy, looks like you want to say something. I did. Sorry. I was waving my arms. Um, you were talking, Jim, about peace. And it made me think of a story that I read a while ago. And if you mind, it's only it only take about two minutes. But it was it's a, a story about the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Have you guys heard this? One of the songs. So, um, yeah. Well, let me tell you the history of the song. And it's overwhelming. But this is a man who had peace. And it wasn't in circumstances. As you're talking, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's a great illustration to this. I have decided to follow Jesus as a Christian hymn originated from India. The lyrics are based on the last two words of a man from Garo Assam. Uh, yeah, Assam. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. And as a result, this many missionaries came to the northeast India to spread the gospel. The region is known as Assam and was comprised of hundreds of tribes were primitive and aggressive headhunters. Into the hostility and aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist Mission spreading the message of love, peace, and hope of Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. This faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christ. Angry, the village chief summoned the villagers. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public and face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal the man, of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down two children. As both boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief said, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children. You will lose your wife too. 
But the man replied, though no one joins me, still I will follow. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. And now he asked the last time, I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said in final memorable line, the cross before me, the world behind me, behind me, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family, but with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who ordered the killings was moved by faith of the man. He wondered why should this man, his wife and two children die for a man who lived a far land uh, on another continent some 2000 years ago. There must be some remarkable power behind the man's faith. And I too want to taste that faith. In a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus. And when the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their savior. The song is based on the last words of Nakseng, a man from Gairo tribe in Assam. There we wow. go. But I just thought he he understood peace in a way that we don't, didn't he? Like I, I don't live that way daily, but the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit and obedience and faith and that area and that whole community came to Christ because of his faith. And we can say how terrible it is. It is terrible. He was martyred, but in the eyes of eternity, that was a split second, right? So anyways, I just, that, that, that uh, story always motivates me. What a great story. That's, that's just amazing. I never heard that before. Obviously I sang the song many times since I was a kid, um, but never knew the story behind it. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for sharing that. It's a great way to wrap up, Greg. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.